Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapters 6 and 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And Stephen said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of God. Thanks, Joe. Good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemers. Thanks for being with us on a holiday weekend. Uh, As I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, you get extra Jesus points for being here this morning. And once again, my friend who uses those is not here, Um, so hopefully he's listening or will listen on the app at some point. Um, We are, as David said, uh, going to kick off a summer series next week, Uh, and so today is is our last week in the book of Acts until August, where we'll pick back up in chapter 8. And as we've been seeing in uh, the book of Acts, it's really, you've heard of the magazine Sports Illustrated, right? This is Revival Illustrated. Uh, over and over again. Uh, But while the church has been experiencing revival, experiencing power from on high, opposition has been building, right? So in Acts 4, uh, a couple of weeks ago, after the man who was uh, lame from birth was healed, uh, Peter and John are brought into the council. They're questioned. They're eventually uh, arrested, beaten, freed, uh, and then uh, they they uh, leave rejoicing that they got to suffer dishonor for the name. What a bunch of weirdos, right? Um, gosh. Uh, and yet, uh, you get to chapter 6. We are skipping over the first six verses, but I want to read verse 7 to you. Uh, it's not printed there, so if you're following along uh, in your Bible, you can look there with me or just listen. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the, the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So even as that is going on, okay, the word of God is increasing, disciples are, 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 are growing, 
Power is going out. Opposition is building. Uh, similar to today, in fact, uh, you, you may not realize this, but statistically, the evangelical church in the United States is growing, right? People are coming to faith. Churches are growing. Um, but I, I think you would all agree that uh, Christians, the church, is becoming more and more of a minority in the West. And as that happens, uh, real opposition is increasing. And I think we can all feel that, um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I would just point out to you that the growing sense within the culture that anyone who makes exclusive truth claims uh, is a bigot or intolerant, those sorts of things. Uh, so we're very much on or in the middle of a lot of that. And the book of Acts is a real help to us as we seek to reach uh, the culture that we're in. And one of the most written about and most documented features of the early church uh, in light of all this, was their ability to suffer in the face of persecution and opposition. In fact, social scientists uh, have done a number of studies uh, looking at various worldview groups and religious groups throughout the world, and uh, the consensus that they come to every time is Christianity prepares its members to suffer and handle opposition and persecution better than any other worldview, bar none. Uh, And so as the church is exploding, so is a groundswell of antagonism to the gospel. And part of how they showed in the early church, part of how they showed this power from on high was through their suffering, right? People knew they had experienced this power from on high by the way that they suffered. And the first example we have is uh, Stephen. So we're going to look this morning at three things that are there in your uh, sermon insert. uh, And they are this, what leads to Stephen's death, the beauty of Stephen's death, and the effect of Stephen's death, okay? The, what leads to it, the beauty of it, and the effect of it. Uh, and I mentioned this in the first service, you know, a lot of times uh, they say preaching is a craft, it's an art form, it's a skill, you've got to hone it and uh, do it more and more. And um, for those of you who are around here regularly, I don't do it very much around here, and so a lot of times my preaching to me feels like modern art where, you know, one of those, uh, I forget his name, Pollock, the guy that used to just throw buckets of paint on the wall, and psh, you know, splash stuff, and then they'd sell it for millions of dollars. Uh, I'm trying to get away from that sense of preaching, and more of a preaching of like Michelangelo or uh, Rembrandt, or you know, like one of these stained glass windows, a little bit more detailed and uh, hopefully a little bit more artistic and helpful. Uh, and so, in doing that, I want to try to summarize uh, in one sentence. I'm going to try to do this from now on, so all of you can wait with bated breath for the next time I preach. Um, but the summary, the summary sentence uh, of this is, only Christianity can prepare us to suffer well. Only Christianity can prepare us to suffer well. And so we're going to look at Stephen as an illustration of that, and hopefully it will be of help to us um, in, uh, in our lives as well. So first, uh, what leads to his death, this sermon? And while we don't have time to go through the sermon line by line, okay, I want to try and summarize it. It's one of the longer sermons in the Bible, interestingly enough, and it, certainly in the New Testament. Uh, and and he, he makes a lot of claims. Um, but what he says in the sermon obviously leads to his death. His claims about Jesus in particular are the ones that are most repulsive. They're the ones that really, really get at the people. And his answer to the charges against him as he's brought into the council center around two themes. And I apologize, this verse is not... Uh, printed for you, uh, but let me read it. It's uh, verse 13 from chapter 6. 
So they stir up the people and then they bring him into the council and they, they place the witnesses who charge him and they say these words. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so there's, there's two themes he's going after, the temple and the law, as he answers for all of uh, chapter 7, which, of course, we didn't read. I would encourage you to go back and read it later if you uh, can find the time. It's a great chapter as he surveys um, his, uh, his nation's history. But he says, God's dwelling place is everywhere now because of Jesus. Therefore, you don't need a temple. God can be found without the temple. Geography doesn't matter either because through the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, you can find and access God anywhere right? Now, for people who believed that the temple was the place, not only was it the place, but Gentiles, unclean people, weren't allowed in there. So it helped the Jews with a sense of exclusivity. This is the place where we go to meet God. He blows that to smithereens by saying, no, through Jesus now, anywhere you are, you can access God, right? But not only that, he goes after the law, and he says, law-keeping will not get you anywhere. Because of Jesus, the law's power has been destroyed, and he goes through much of Old Testament history to actually make the case and show them that the people never obeyed the law anyway. With all their heart, soul, mind, and strength as they were instructed to do, right? And what gets him into so much trouble is he says, Jesus does away with the temple and its sacrificial system. Jesus does away with the law's condemnation. But how? Uh, And for Jews, the temple was the location... The temple was, this, was, was where the sacrificial system was carried out, and that was the only way to fulfill the law's demands because you can either obey the law or what? Pay the consequences for disobeying the law, right? So, for example, running a stop sign, you know, you can pull up to it, stop, obey it, move on through. Or you can blow through the stop sign, hope that a cop is not sitting there. But if a cop is staying, sitting there, what do they do? They're going to stop you. They're going to write you a ticket. And there's going to be money, a fee that you have to pay, right? So <clears throat> you're under the law's condemnation at that point, and you have to pay the price to get out from underneath the law's condemnation. But here's the deal. You're still a lawbreaker. You still have the points on your license, right? You're still known in their computer as a lawbreaker. And we'll get to how Jesus transforms that in a minute. But here's Stephen declaring Jesus Christ of Nazareth has changed all of that. And he his climax, the sermon climax is in verse 51. That is printed for you uh, in the worship folder. So let me read those again because as if they weren't offended enough, he, he, he ends the sermon. I'm thinking about doing this today. So we'll see how it goes over with y'all. But he ends the sermon like this. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand, that is the prophets, the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law delivered by angels and don't keep it. Right? That's what he says. But what is he really saying? He's telling them they need new hearts. The problem is they, don't, they, they have stony hearts, they have broken hearts, they need new ones, right? He says their hearts are uncircumcised. What is that word? 
Well, that's a Hebrew way of describing something unclean. And he tells them, even though they've had the law for many years, they don't follow it anyway because they can't follow the law because they need a new heart. So he's basically told a bunch of people who rely on the temple and their sacrificial system to keep them clean and separated from the Gentiles that their hearts are like Gentile hearts. Uh, Somebody tweeted this last week that if preachers today preached like the apostles did, we'd all be fired. And I thought, that's probably true. I need to go back and edit some of what I had planned to say. Uh, No, in all seriousness, I mean, it's pretty strong language, right? He's really going after them. But what's the point? Well, you get the gospel at the beginning today. Usually it comes at the end of the sermon, but you're getting it at the beginning. And Stephen tells them, just as their fathers did before them, they murdered the righteous one. They murdered the the one who was sent to deliver them, to, to offer them salvation, as they had done again and again. And, of course, he's referring to Jesus. And here's the gospel. In Stephen's presentation, he says Jesus Christ is the temple. Only in him do you get access to God, just like the temple. In fact, he's the bridge between humanity and God, right? Just like they believed the temple was. He's where you go to find God. Because it's his work that makes it possible for sinful and clean people like us to approach a holy and righteous God. Well, what's the work? What's the work that he did? Well, he came to fulfill the law. He lived a beautiful life of love. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. Perfectly. Only ever did nothing but that, right? But he also fulfilled the law by paying its penalty for those who are disobedient. Because when you believe, when you trust in Jesus for salvation as he's offered to you in the gospel, he takes your disobedience to the law, satisfies it with his death on the cross, as your substitute, as your stand-in, but he also gives you his record of law-keeping. So it now becomes your record. So the problem with the stop sign is you're still a law-breaker. You pay the penalty for the ticket, but you're still a law-breaker. But because of Jesus or in Jesus, you believe in him. His record becomes yours. You're no longer seen as a law-breaker. Yeah, that's good news. Especially if you believe you're a law-breaker in the first place. It helps to You know, it helps to, gosh, yeah, I'm pretty bad, right? His record becomes your record. Jesus gets counted as a lawbreaker, which he didn't deserve. You and I get counted as law keepers, which we didn't deserve. Salvation is all of grace. Isn't that gospel marvelous? I mean, it's marvelous. Well, why do they not go, this is great news, Stephen. What do I need to do to be saved? That ain't the way they respond, is it? Right? They respond this way. Let me read verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I don't know about you. I've never had someone grind their teeth at me. But I would imagine that's pretty bad. I mean, that's pretty scary, you know? I mean, I don't know, I don't know how Luke or whoever witnessed this and was telling Luke the story knew that they were grinding their teeth. But it must have been, maybe it was a verbal thing. I don't know. But they respond very, very badly. They are enraged. They are hopping mad. And the reason is, I would submit to you, Jesus is the offense. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we heard about how the exclusive claims of Christianity are really rubbing up against the pluralism of our culture. 
Uh, Drew talked about that when he talked about the supernatural boldness that the apostles had because they had been with Jesus. They said things like, salvation is found in no one else. That's an exclusive truth claim. But that's also offensive, right? And we're seeing the rub again here in Stephen's sermon because Western culture, that is our culture, values self-actualization above everything else. And what I mean is this when I say that. I define myself, right? I define myself. No one else defines me. In fact, I make, I create the categories of reality that I choose to live in, and everyone else must fit into them as I have formulated them. Furthermore, you must tolerate me. You must embrace me, and nothing but acceptance and non-judgmental validation will do. Thank you very much. If you don't, I'll post on Facebook about how terrible and mean and intolerant you are in a very passive-aggressive, impersonal way, I might add, right? I mean, that's where we live. That's the culture we're in. And the gospel confronts that head-on and says, you don't define you. God defines you. God defines you because God designed you. That's what the gospel tells us. But, but the gospel also tells us we're broken. It says self-rule always ends in self-destruction. Always. So you need help. The gospel says you're unable. It declares our inability. It highlights our weakness because it says Jesus Christ came for sinners. And that's offensive. I'm wondering, I'm really scared. We were talking about this, this last week at our uh, network preaching meeting in Lakeland. Uh, and one of the guys said, I think we're headed to the day where we're going to get sued. You and I as, uh, as preachers. What do you mean? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that are constituting hate speech nowadays. Well, what if we're moving to the day when the word sinner, when calling someone a sinner constitutes hate speech, and they sue me, or Drew, or any other uh, guy who is um, preaching? Scary, uh, scary stuff, but the gospel is offensive. And it's, not the go- it's, it, it's the news about Jesus that's really offensive, right? Salvation is found in no one else. But let's watch how Stephen responds, how he faces this suffering, because it's absolutely uh, stunning. That's what, that's what leads him to the place where they are enraged and grind their teeth at him. But watch how he dies. It's absolutely stunning, right? When's the last time you described something as stunning? Husbands, it better have been speaking about your wife sometime recently, right? A, a, a sunrise, a sunset. We, we've used the word before. It's just breathtaking beauty. And I, I want to convince you that He dies in a breathtakingly beautiful way. As soon as he realizes this is it, he looks intently into heaven, and what does he see? Look at verse 55, and let me keep reading. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said out loud to these people who are enraged and grinding their teeth at him, running at him, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, refusing to listen to him, right? And rushed together, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Uh, One commentator named F.F. Bruce said this about this passage. As Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, he now looks and sees Christ confessing his servant before God the Father. What an amazing thing, right? 
Because when he looked around, all he could see were the raging people ready to condemn him. But when he looks into heaven, what does he see? He sees his advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, ready to commend him. In fact, not only is he ready to commend him, he's standing there commending him before the Father while these people are condemning him to death. Well, what happens to you and I uh, when we look bad or foolish in this so-called court of public opinion? We all live there, right? You don't have to be running for president or something grandiose or big like that. We all live in courtrooms every day, right? You go to work, um, you're in a courtroom. And I don't just mean you know, judges and attorneys. I mean, literally, we're all in courtrooms. We're all being judged. And when our focus is proving ourselves in that court, the court of public opinion, our family's opinion, our workmate's opinion, whatever it is, our goal tends to then become manage life, manage image, manage my behavior in such a way that the verdict will be one of vindication and acceptance and one that says, stamp, you know, uh, stamps over us, you're okay. But look at Stephen. Look at Stephen. When the court of public opinion is ready to kill him, he turns to the heavenly court. Uh, he goes to where he sees Jesus interceding and pleading his blood for Stephen. And that sight, that is the sight that allows him to be calm and composed. Right? Even as he's being thrown out of the city to die. Because, as the Bible teaches us, tells us, if God is for me, who can be against me, right? The court of public opinion doesn't matter because my eyes are fixed on the most beautiful sight. Stephen saw his risen, ascended Lord standing in his defense in the only court that mattered and it allowed him to die with composure and calmness and, and peace and say some of the things that he said, which I'll get to in a minute. Joseph Hart, one of the hymn writers, uh, wrote these words, Come ye sinner, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, right, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Stephen got that. Or the hymn writer, Ora Rowan, which we'll sing this in a few minutes, she said this, "'Tis that look that melted Peter, "'tis that face that Stephen saw, "'tis that heart that wept with Mary, "'can alone from idols draw, captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled king. That's who he saw. What did everyone else see? Well, they saw a man whose face was like a what? Does Luke say? Like an angel. What does a face like an angel look like? I don't know. Sometimes when our children are sleeping, were sleeping. Um, I'm speaking of my children, not yours, but uh, we would look at them and, you know, oh, it's just so, so angelic and peaceful sleeping, right? Till they get up, right? That ten, tends to be how we use that phrase. But Luke, Luke, someone told him all the people gazing at him in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It just means he was relaxed. It just means he was calm, he was composed. He was a person full of faith in the Holy Spirit, crying out to Jesus to receive him, and whose last words were a plea for forgiveness for his killers. This was a guy who fell asleep. What does that mean? It just means the same reason you and I fall asleep. It's to go to sleep, to wake up refreshed. Because he knew. 
I'm falling asleep right here on this slab of concrete in the middle of Jerusalem, and I'm going to wake up there. So he was just relaxed, right? Suffering isn't easy. Luke says he fell asleep. He was peaceful, but he was exhausted. Had to be. He was composed, but he was weak. He had just been stoned, right? He was, he was bearing down under the weight of those stones. But, but Stephen looks forward to awaking refreshed in the presence of Jesus. This is a man who loved Jesus more than anything else in this world, and he died just like him. Where do you see that? Well, look at what he says. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like the Lord Jesus on the cross said, Father, receive my spirit. From our call to worship, Psalm 51. Right? Or excuse me, 31. And then falling to his knees, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He sounds just like Jesus. And for you and I, as the sight that Stephen describes becomes more and more a focus in our mind's eye, in our experience, then our life becomes one that's able to take on more of a sense of security and peace. It'll be more natural for you and I to cry out like the psalmist did in Psalm 31 and throughout the psalms. And it will produce something very stunning for others to see, right? If you've, if you've seen someone, watched someone die, uh, or been there uh, when a saint has gone to glory, it's, again, it, it backs up what the sociologists tell us. Only Christians die well. Because only Christianity can prepare us for the suffering. Uh, because only Christianity gives us a sight of peerless worth uh, that we can fix our eyes on. Well, what's the effect? Okay? Uh, you saw his words that enraged these people. You see how he died. What's the effect? One person in particular was present at Stephen's death and witnessed the whole thing. And Luke intentionally mentions him. Who am I talking about? Uh, verse 58, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This guy was standing there watching the whole thing, and as people took off their garments because, you know, they didn't want to get them bloody or dirty, he said, oh, leave them right here. I'll watch them while you guys go stone this guy. Well, who was that guy? If you're new to the Bible or uh, to church, this is a guy who would later be converted to a Jesus follower just a couple of chapters later in the book of Acts, his name would get changed to Paul, and he would become the greatest church planner in the history of the world. And something had to have happened, I believe, something had to have happened watching Stephen die like that, watching this man die like that, had to have affected Saul and changed him in some way. Very small, okay? It wasn't immediate, for sure, but eventually that seed would sprout Listen to the effect of Stephen's death. We didn't print it for you. I'll read it to you. This is Acts 8, verse 1. On that day there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions. In the first century, a, a Christian writer said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because the church was experiencing persecution, and the seeds are scattering, says Luke. He writes things like, Acts 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Acts 6, verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't withstand it because it was an unstoppable force. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Do you know what the last word in Greek is in the book of Acts? The word unhindered. 
And in the last chapter of the book of Acts, uh, the Apostle Paul is in prison. And he's preaching. And the word, the kingdom is advancing, Luke says, and the very last word is unhindered. Do you think that was on purpose? Absolutely. He says, try as you might, you can't stop it. The kingdom of God's advance is actually sped up by suffering. As Drew said a couple weeks ago, the church seems to do its best work in the times where we are under pressure and in the minority. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But the suffering and persecution of the early church actually motivated them toward the mission of making Jesus Christ known to all people. And to the degree that you and I can suffer well before a watching world, our mission, our participation in the mission will advance too. Because here's the thing, when you and I suffer like Stephen, whether it's facing death like him, or whether it's something we might call low-level suffering, that is, you're, you're working for a boss that's overbearing and you can't stand in a job you can't leave. That's still suffering. I'm not making light of that any more than I'm making light of facing death from, from uh, cancer or some sort of disease. But wherever you and I are suffering and facing that, the glory of God is shown. The glory of God is revealed to those who don't know him. It actually spreads Because when we patiently endure suffering, if those watching us know we're Christians, we show God's power in a way that nothing else can. It's easy to praise God and talk about him and say things like Stephen said when everything's going well. But it's when things are going badly, terribly, awfully, and you can say those things that the world around looks at and goes, wow, right? see Saul and see what happened in his life eventually. Now, how is that? How can the gospel really prepare us for suffering? How can it help us endure in the midst of it? How can it even achieve glory for God? Suffering, right? It seems counterintuitive. And the reason is because it gives us a power that can help us know with absolute certainty it's not in vain. No suffering, no suffering is for nothing for the Christian First Peter says, if you're a Christian, you have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's reserved. It's kept in heaven for you. It can't be destroyed. So they can take your life. They took Stephen's, but could they take what really mattered for him? No. Because Jesus himself took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy us. That is being cast away from God into eternal separation. Jesus was cast into hell in your place. So that now in him... All the suffering that comes into your life, all of it, from low level, just inconveniences or having to endure, uh, you know, something that's just, man, this stinks, to cancer, to you name it, everything in between, all the suffering that comes into your life only serves to make you great and make you glorious because it's making you like Jesus. And that's that type of person. That type of person who embraces that, who sees that, who catches a sight of the same thing uh, Stephen did is an unstoppable force for good in the world. Now look back at the assurance of pardon uh, as we finish up here. Peter says, Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an an example so that you might follow in his steps. Notice, Notice that he doesn't say, Jesus suffered for you, so now you don't have to suffer. He says... Jesus suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. And so if you're a Christian, you're now able to suffer just like Jesus. And that's where the world watches and goes, how in the world do they do that? Stephen is an example. Saul watching him is one of those, wow, how does he do that? How is he able to say those things? Another uh, more recent example, which I'll end with, is... um, in uh, 2006, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a guy named Charles Roberts, who uh, had uh, lost his little girl um, maybe a year or two before, uh, very angry, walked into a uh, Amish schoolhouse and killed, I believe it was 13 children. It was a good number of children. I don't know if 13 is the right number, but um, it was a lot. And then he ended by killing uh, himself made national news, a uh, great tragedy. Uh, but, but, but listen to what happened after. The afternoon of the shooting, one of the grandfathers of the Amish girls uh, who was killed publicly expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. And now listen to this one. At Charles Roberts's funeral, Amish people outnumbered non-Amish people. This guy wasn't Amish. They killed the children. Now how in the world did they do that? How in the world could they muster up the strength to do those kinds of things? Why did it confound the pundits and the scholars and, and the, uh, the social commentators? They said, oh, you know, this is, this is uh, just amazing. But at times like this, it brings out the best in us. No. The ability to suffer like that, the ability to even forgive the man who murdered your own children, comes from another world. It ain't from this world. Was that easy for them to do? Of course not. They were grieving, they were hurting too, right? But here's the deal. Because of their experience of Jesus' suffering on their behalf, it was possible for them. They were able to do it. Because this was a community who responded to their killer in the same way that Stephen did. Because at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of Christianity is a man who died for his enemies. And when we talk about that and we sing about that and we rehearse it over and over and we celebrate it again and again and again, it makes forgiving, it makes suffering, it makes even death possible. Not easy, not light, not fun, but possible. And not just possible, embraceable. Because in it, we not only see God get glorified and that glory spread, but there's glory that awaits us. And so only Christianity can help us and can prepare us to suffer well and know that glory is awaiting us in the same way that it awaited Jesus, in the same way that it awaited Stephen. So let's pray as we finish and ask God to make us a community of faith who can handle life like this. Because if we handle life like this, rest assured, Winter Haven and Polk County will be filled with the glory of God when they see a group of people, when they see Uh, many groups of people, many churches handling life like this uh, will be unstoppable and the kingdom will be unhindered. So let's pray that he would make that happen. Lord Jesus, we do give thanks to you uh, as we once again rehearse uh, and celebrate and retell uh, this story again 
and again uh, this morning by what we pray and sing and hear uh, read and proclaimed. And we thank you for leaving us an example that we might follow in your steps. But we confess that it is super scary uh, to think about living like that and to think about doing that and, and even facing some of the situations that I know um, brothers and sisters in this room are facing even right now, even this week. And so I pray that you would give us great grace. Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would flood our hearts, flood our minds with this sight of peerless worth, with the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father, commending us. And may it make us able to face and, and, and make possible even forgiveness of our enemies and some of the things that we have meditated on today. And may you receive glory as a result, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as you go from here, whether you're uh, dealing with inner condemnation, uh, your heart is condemning you, uh, I'm not good enough, everybody else thinks I'm not good enough, or you've got some sense of suffering, uh, some situation that you've really got to face uh, that's hard, that you need endurance, uh, these words go with you. Uh, they, they, they go, they're spoken over you, uh, but they go with you. Uh, and so our prayer is that they would enter down deep into your soul and contribute to leaving here with that sight of peerless worth, uh, that only that sight can equip us and give us the resources we need to face either of those situations. Uh, so receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Mm-hmm.